Welcome back to The Heather McCoy Show. Joining us now is mental health advocate and author of the book, Elector Boy, Memoir of Mania, Andy Berman. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thanks so much, Heather, for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Um, My first question would be, since the medical field knows so much more about bipolar disorder, with today's knowledge base, if you were born in 1990, for example, at what age do you think you would get that diagnosis? Well, that's a great question, but I think it's an assumption that the, uh, the, the medical field knows so much more about bipolar disorder. I can tell you that my own psychiatrist says, as far as psychiatry goes in comparison to something like obstetrics or cardiology, we're in the Stone Age. We yeah. know absolutely nothing. But in all fairness, I think that my own family would have seen symptoms and not just written them off as creative or wacky at age 8, 9, or 10, and I think probably as early as 12, 13, or 14, I would have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I was diagnosed at 28. But since you were born in the early 60s, much later on in your life, you were diagnosed, you know, as you were 28 with bipolar disorder. What was, what was then the first signs of what you called the crazies? Uh, well, it, I guess it would be important since I write about it in the lecture boy quite extensively what the crazies were. The crazies were a combination of uh, staying up for 72 hours in a row, uh, hypersexuality, overspending, you know, getting on a plane in New York and traveling to Paris, taking the plane, uh, the train to Berlin, watching the wall come down. Uh, just running all over the globe uh, and really leading a really risky life with drugs and alcohol. And uh, I was meaning what were the first signs of it, like 8, 9, and 10? Oh, what were the first signs of it at yeah. 8, 9, and 10? Uh, at 8, 9, and 10, sleep, sleeplessness, restlessness, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, hand washing. Uh, cleaning constantly. Uh, I mean, in general, just an uh, agitation and uh, what most people would have called hyperactivity, which yeah. is not what it was. Yeah. So, what, what, how? What was the latest that you? How? Let me rephrase that. What was the longest you stayed up at eight, nine, and ten? Were you up like? 23 hours like you were as an adult? Or? Oh, yeah. I just, didn't, I just didn't go to sleep. I would just... Oh, my goodness. Just go to... You know, I, I would miss a day of sleep, you know, it, it, in second and third grade, for sure. Oh, okay. Since um, your manic depression seems to be more latent in your earlier childhood, uh, was it a help or a hindrance in your studies as well as how you performed socially? Uh, no, I, that's a great question. I mean, actually, it was... Uh, it was helpful because I was awake quite a bit, so I was extremely productive. I had time to be productive. I had time to absorb lots of information. This is, you know, pre-computer, but yeah. I would, you know, read encyclopedias. I'd read maps. So I was trying to soak in as much information as possible. At the same time, in school, I could apply myself very well. I mean, I, you know, I borrowed every book from the library, and I took every homework assignment really seriously, and... I was just a pretty intense kid. Yeah. And I think, you know, that the word intensity is so often applied to people who are bipolar. Um, and I used it to my advantage. 
Yeah. What were, what were some of the downsides as far as school and, and um, performing socially with um, bipolar disorder? Uh, I mean, I think as far as performing socially, there was always an inclination to either be the life of the party or to isolate entirely and to be on my yeah. own. And as far as academics, there was not a lack of focus per se, but I didn't give things a chance. For example, if calculus frustrated me in the first minute, that was it for calculus for two years. Yeah. You know, there was no time to come back and revisit it. Yeah. I was ready to move on to the next thing. And in, in, in that case, and I, I, I write about this in Electro Boy, I mean, from calculus, I mean, I, I, I could just think of anything. At, there was so much random thinking. I was thinking, well, I'll learn Mandarin. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> at 17, I'll yeah. learn Mandarin. So. Yeah. Was your manic depression like a slow tide that was building through high school with the ultimate crash in college where you can barely get to your classes because all you wanted to do is sleep? Mm, I mean, it was it was always building. It was building from you know age eight to to twenty eight. I mean, it was two decades of it building. Um, I think what happened when I got to college is that it started being fueled by the fact that a I was living on my own, so I could do a lot of things that I was not allowed to do before, and or I was not exposed to. I mean, in in, in high school, there was no uh, experimentation with drugs or alcohol. Uh, in college, I made up for, you know, <laughs> Lost five time. years in, in one week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was specifically, it was specifically alcohol, marijuana, and cocaine. Yeah, yeah. Just a bit of a self-disclosure. There are times in my life when all I want to do is sleep, and it's really hard for me to accomplish things. How did you pull yourself together to make your film and then graduate with from Wesleyan with university with honors? Um... You mean without sleeping? Well, I mean, you like when you were in that in school. It seemed like all you wanted to do was sleep. So how did, were you able to actually get? Well, out I of mean, right. But all I wanted to do was sleep. But on the other hand, when I had to study for an, uh, you know a final exam, um, I could probably crunch in seventy-two straight hours of studying, which oh, is more okay. than anyone probably had studied <laughs> that entire semester. And I also had a tremendous ability to remember information. Yeah. So. I could kind of, uh, my comebacks were great. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have to go to a class for a whole semester, yet I could study on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and be totally prepared for a, a Monday final. Yeah. And do well. Yeah. Well, since you were doing a lot of drugs and partying in college, how does the hard drugs and alcohol interact with being manic depressive? Uh, not well. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the cocaine-fueled mania the alcohol fueled the depression. The two battled each other. It's just really, it's just antithetical. The two just can't, they don't work together yeah. at all. I mean, the, the illness does not work very well with <laughs> drugs and alcohol. Yeah. So um, but what were some of the other ways that your manic depression manifested itself in college? Uh I was uh, I I was obsessed with 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 detail. I was obsessed with knowing all six hundred people in my freshman class. Wow! I was obsessed with being extremely social and outgoing. Uh, I was obsessed with perfection and really doing well, and also doing things that were different that people would notice. Yeah. Um. So this very creative side of me. Um, you know, this was the first chance it really had to come out. 
So once you finished graduation, I read in an interview that the jobs that you did after graduation, they kind of took advantage of the fact you, that you were able to stay 22, up 22 hours a day. Sure. Um, uh, sure. It was like I always say, you know, my first job was working for Giorgio Armani in New York. I was the yeah. assistant to the, the CEO of the company. And, hey, who doesn't like an employee who can uh, work 15, 16 hours, you know, yeah. come in at 6 in the morning and, you know, leave at 9 or 10 at night, or sometimes just sleep over at the office, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, during that time, did you realize that that wasn't normal? No. Oh, no, okay. I thought I was, I thought I had a lot of energy. Everyone always said I had a lot of energy. People say I have a lot of energy now. I do. Yeah. I mean, I can multitask better than anybody, but I also have boundaries and limitations, and I know when it's, you know, midnight, uh, that I don't want to be awake at 5 in the morning, and I still don't want to be working. I don't want to be on the computer. Yeah. See, um, so it's basically time budgeting then at this point. Well, yeah. Now it's just managing and coping with the fact that uh, sleep isn't really uh, – it, it's, it's, e- it's, still, it's still not an easy thing, but the worst thing for someone with bipolar disorder is to go without sleep or sleep two or three hours. Now I can sleep a solid five hours, and that's just enough for my system. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, in the early 80s, some of the other risky behavior you did at the time, such as being a male prostitute and spending money that you really didn't have, how does that feed into a feeling of get, getting hot, real high while being bipolar? Uh, wow. Uh, that's <laughs> a lot of questions at once. Okay. The, the first job was, uh, while well, I was working in Church of Armani, my first job there, and it was actually one of my jobs there, was pimping for Mr. Armani, uh, meaning securing prostitutes for him and for his partner, and then doing it myself, and then working as a go-go boy. Uh, So your question was, how did it... It seems that you were doing some really high-risk behavior, but how does that feed into being bipolar? It doesn't necessarily... I think it's symptomatic of being bipolar. I don't think it feeds into it. I think it just... Hey, I realized I had a 15-hour job day. I could add five hours on more. I could make an extra thousand dollars that day. Um, it, it's just symptomatic of, of, of how, you know, of, of taking advantage of every minute in the day oh, because okay. of this fear of like thinking, oh my God, I don't want my life to be dull and boring. I've got to keep every hour scheduled, booked, etc. Oh, okay. So that's because I think I read in the prelude that, you know, keeping yourself busy and doing multiple things it's kind of like an emotional high as well oh sure yeah. sure i mean uh an emotional high uh which is the equivalent of staying awake for 24 hours i mean if i was awake for 24 hours i i, I felt extremely uh alive however you know there was always a crash yeah yeah what yeah. attracted you uh to being a dancer and um what why did you actually go up on stage um, you're the first person who's ever asked that in 10 years. I love it. Uh, I love it. So now I have oh, to answer Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> what attracted me to it? Uh, I guess somewhere deep down, I was this nice suburban kid, so I knew it was wrong. I knew it was daring. Uh, I knew it was risky. Uh, and it seemed exciting. And I think when you're bipolar, I always tell people being bipolar is like walking a tightrope without a net underneath. I mean, I had no idea what was going to happen to me. I mean, here I am standing naked and probably in front of, you know, 200 people 
I can't even see their faces. I mean, I'm, I always used to think, I wonder how many of the people in this audience I know. I wonder if any of my high school teachers, my college teachers, my parents' <laughs> friends are watching me. Yeah. So there's that incredible high that came from the risk. And and then another job you did after you left Amarni, you worked in PR for quite a bit. Um, just a, aside from bi- the bipolar issue, as someone that's worked in PR and has booked clients on Donahue and Sully, Jesse, and Oprah back in the day, do public relations people actually believe in what their clients are selling to the public via media? Um, do they? Sure. And if <laughs> oh, they don't, okay. they better quickly. But no, I, I, I adored all of my clients. I thought some of them had some great concepts, uh, some great product, uh, great services. And I did things that were a little bit outlandish to get them booked on shows like Oprah Winfrey. You know, I mean, I could take my, one of my least client, my least talented clients and get them on Oprah Winfrey. I just had to come up with a great form, be really enthusiastic about him and say, I've got the perfect guest for you. Yeah. And then he or she would be in Chicago. What was one of the craziest stunts you ever did to get them on the show? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I have to say that I, I had a, uh, a really big diet doctor uh, who's sold millions of copies of his books. He's passed away very early. Uh, his name is Dr. Stuart Berger. And I booked him on the Donahue show. It was years ago. And I knew the most cri- the show was live, and I knew the most critical <laughs> thing would be to keep him away from meeting the producer because he weighed 420 pounds. So I remember <laughs> ooh, it was very odd when he showed up on the set talking about the importance of uh, maintaining uh, an ideal weight when he was sitting there at, like, well, still kind of tall, like 6'5", but obese at 420 yeah. pounds. Yeah. So um, you left your PR career. What was the motivation behind going to work for Mark Kopsi? Mark Kostabi. Mark Kostabi. Well, I, yeah. I, I left my I left my PR career with my sister. We were we were in partnership. I went into my own PR business, um, and then I dabbled in. I you know I mean I was by, I wanted to do a million things. I wanted to write a gossip column. I also which I did in New York. I worked at. Uh, New York Magazine. I also, you know, wanted to be in the NASA program. I mean, I, I, I wanted to be an inventor. There were so many things I wanted to do. Why? I was bipolar. I mean, the focus is the focus is way off. Yeah. And the ability to keep the focus is really tough. But I went to work for Marcus Dobby, who was a very well-known artist in, in Manhattan in the 80s, early 80s, mid-80s, uh, even late 80s, actually. Um, and I went to him on the premise of just saying, you know, I want to, uh, I want to write about you. Write about you turned into, I want to promote you, uh, and then promotion turned into um, my dealing his work. I had never been an art dealer in my whole life, but you know, as he said to me, I have a feeling you can do anything, so give it a shot. Yeah. yeah. So I did. So I started peddling, I started promoting his artwork, and then I started selling his artwork in the U.S. and abroad. Yeah. And if you're just joining us, my guest is on the phone line is Andy Berman, who is the author of Elector Boy, and he can be found at electorboy.com. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen Exit Through the Gift Shop, the documentary, but uh, Mark Kostavi's work kind of reminds me of something like pre-Mr. Brainwash. I don't know if you've seen that film or not. Yes. Well, I mean, Mark Kostavi was an artist in the 80s. He didn't paint any of his own paintings. He just signed them. He had other painters paint them. It was a factory process. And all the images were of faceless people doing all kinds of things, walking down the street, having sex, playing golf, and it was a fad. And Wall Street kids at that time were, you know, they wanted to cover their art with their walls with beautiful art. So they would make this investment, and they thought, wow, this guy's getting so much publicity. He's going to be huge one day. So they started investing in him, and we were doing really well. I mean, it went from making about $300,000 in one year to about $6 million the next. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So when your coworker approached you about forging uh, Kostopi's art, was this a bad decision based on a logical ratcheting up of a logical thinking due to your illness? Um, no, I think it was just an idea that was really risky that was presented to me. Uh, a painter of Kostabi said, you know, I paint these paintings. I could paint them outside. I can paint them in my studio in Brooklyn. We could have a bunch of people painting them. You already sign his paintings. You're authorized to sign his paintings. You would sign these paintings. You pay us a flat fee of $1,000 per painting. Sell them for whatever you want. We don't care. We're just tired of making minimum wage. And they were. They were making $7 an hour. And, you know, it was a long week to make $300. So if they could paint a painting in a night and I would give them $1,000 and I could turn around and sell the painting for 8000 or 10000 or sometimes twenty. It was a it was a great deal for all of us. Yeah. Uh, post trial, you write that uh, post. You did eventually get caught for this, and post. I did. I got. I, I, the, the 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 case was technically a counterfeiting case, and it was all over the media in New York City. Um, it was followed by the New York Times. Even the trial was followed. But the point is, uh, you know, I. I I, I had no sense that I had done anything wrong. Yeah, because you could do that. You were legally able to do that already. Um, beyond that, even if I had been doing it illegally, I think that my mental illness would have gotten in the way and said, screw it. Yeah. I did what I did, and come and get, come and get me. Well, the feds did. They came and got me. Yeah, and then you, after you were studying your own case, you saw that you left a long you know, a long trail of incriminating evidence. Oh, sure. I yeah. left, uh, you know, there were wires that were easy, easily able to be traced to my account coming from galleries. Yeah. Um, but the, 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 the crux of the case was, first of all, it was a wire fraud case, technically. Um, but in front of the jury, the case was, what's a fake painting and what's a real painting when the artist doesn't paint his own paintings anyhow? and he authorizes his dealer to sign them. Um, when I went back to write Electro Boy and I, I read the jury's notes, most of the notes to the judge said, well, we feel like he did something, but we don't know what he did. <laughs> so uh, the, and the judge wrote back, no, you have to know what he's guilty of to find him guilty. So I was only found guilty on one count out of five, and sentenced to five months in prison and five months under house arrest. Yeah, the whole time, my illness had still not been dealt with successfully. Yeah, post-trial uh, for the wire fraud, how did your illness get to the point where you weren't sure if you'd make it to your 33rd birthday? Well, 
I had never heard of bipolar. It was called manic depression. And when my doctor told me, uh, Andy, you have manic depression, I said, do I have to have an MRI? Is my, I, I thought it was a brain disorder, which would, uh, you know, deteriorate my brain. I really didn't think I was going to live. Yeah. I didn't think I was going to kill myself. I just thought my brain was going to disintegrate or blow up. Well, I mean, it seems like the the, the place where you were at, it just seemed like the walls are kind of closing in because that's what your brain said. And it, I'm not sure how you functioned at that point. Um, how I functioned <laughs> because at you, that point. Well, because like you're basically afraid, kind of afraid to go outside and then you're inside all the time and you're you're very scared because things are just kind of going wrong like well i'm scared because i've you know i i'm, I'm about ready to be indicted that's true uh <laughs> i I'm, I'm i i i i'm nervous about going outside because i don't want to get caught and every time i do go outside uh somebody from the us government hands me a business card and says come talk to me and i have specific instructions not to talk to any authorities without an attorney or at all at that point so my bipolar self is saying, go out, party, you know, do something else crazy. But, you know, the other part is saying, stay inside. At this whole time, at this point now, I'm finally dealing with the fact that I have bipolar disorder and I need to be medicated, which is when my starting to see the same doctor for 10 years began. And uh, we started, you know, basically ripping the illness apart and seeing what medications would work for me, which ones wouldn't. And if we could just you know, give me some balance quickly. We were really running against, racing against the clock. And so how was the decision made to go through with electric shock therapy? Uh, well, after 45 medications, did absolutely nothing for me over a period of 18 months. And basically, I just lived with side effects. I told my doctor, well, looks like there's nothing else and there's no way I can live like this. Um, so I opted for um, electroconvulsive therapy, electroshock, ECT. Uh, and I also did it because people, friends and family were saying, oh my God, your life is such a disaster. I said, well, I've been in treatment. I've tried every medication. So I said to myself, well, I'll try the most barbaric thing. And if it doesn't work, well, then I'm not going to feel bad yeah. uh, about not having tried. In reality, I don't think ECT is barbaric at all. I actually fear going to the dentist more than I fear having ECT. Um, during the, some of that time while you were on um, bipolar drugs, you were also doing street drugs. Um, did you have to go to AA to stop that, or did you just kind of quit on your own once you decided that you weren't doing it anymore? Well, I mean, I think it's very, very typical for people who are seriously dealing with their illness, with their psychiatrist, um, to continue doing drugs. I mean, psychiatrists, I mean, I, I, some of the, I saw eight psychiatrists. They all misdiagnosed me. But the point is, I think that, um, I think that a lot of doctors never ask the questions. Are, are you doing street drugs? Yeah. Um, are you, uh, are you smoking pot? Are you doing cocaine? Are you taking Ritalin and chopping it up and snorting it? No one asked those questions. Yeah. Not until I found the doctor that really ended up understanding my illness and treating me. Uh, but yes, I realized I was never going to get well if I was going to fuel my mania with cocaine or Ritalin. 
and then try to come down from it with alcohol. Yeah, and in the book, you said that one psychiatrist misdiagnosed you as oppressive, and then he gave you Ritalin, which was just like speed for no, he you. Gave me, he gave me Prozac. Oh, that's Prozac, Prozac, that's what it was. New. Okay. Knew, I mean, well, because, but, but that's my fault. I presented myself to doctors, meaning I showed up at their offices when uh-huh. I was depressed, when I was high as a kite, either uh, on drugs or if I was just manic and, you know, traveling all over the world, there was no reason for me to feel like I wanted to be talking to a psychiatrist about anything because mania felt right to me. It's what I grew up with. It was the depression and the depressive episodes, the crashes that led me to psychiatrists. Oh, okay. So every time I showed up, they said, oh, clearly you have depression. And you have to keep in mind that bipolar disorder is one of the most difficult illnesses to diagnose. It's harder than depression or schizophrenia because people present uh, themselves inaccurately and at the wrong time, and then they don't want to be open and talk about their mania. Their mania is very embarrassing to them. It's very hard to tell your psychiatrist, well, you know, uh, spent the spent the day working, spent the night, you know, stripping and, you know, <laughs> selling my body and counterfeiting artwork. I, I never told doctors these things. Yeah. And they never asked. I never yeah. Asked. Yeah, how many um, electrotherapy treatments did you go through before you were finished with it? Or do you still do it today? Uh, do it every morning. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I, had, uh, I had five uh, five ECT treatments over a 10-day period in the hospital, and then I had 14 over about a year. So about uh, one every three to four weeks. Those were called maintenance treatments. But at 19, after 19 treatments, I felt really good. Yeah. Um, and I, I was on medication at the same time, too. And my doctor wanted me to continue. He wanted me to continue for life. It was very, it's very lucrative for doctors. I mean, they can make upwards of $3,500, plus the anesthesiologist can make $1,500, and it's totally covered by insurance in this country. Um, so I just didn't want, I never wanted to have a 20th treatment. I, I knew I was done. He didn't agree. I said, sorry, you don't agree, but I'm done. Yeah, yeah. Um, although you did go through electric therapy, you still do take a lot of medications. Medications. Um, how did you get? I, I, I don't. Oh, you don't? I don't today? Today, yeah. No, I don't. Oh wow. No, but That's I'm also amazing. twenty. I'm also twenty years older, and I, I had a psychiatrist who firmly believed that I would outgrow the intensity of this illness, and I think I have. Oh wow. I mean, I take I take two medications. I mean, I used to take fourteen a day. I used to take forty-seven pills at most. Okay. So, how did Abil- how did you get involved with Abilify? Uh, Abilify. Abilify is uh, a drug manufactured by Bristol Myers Squibb. Uh, Bristol Myers Squibb approached me to be their spokesman for bipolar disorder uh, to speak to their drug reps about the illness. Uh, my doctor at UCLA, Dr. Mark Fry. Uh, told me, let's take you off everything, let's put you on monotherapy, just one kind of therapy, Abilify. I later learned that he was the medical consultant to Bristol-Myers Squibb, so it was no coincidence. Yeah. Uh, He obviously had told them that I had come to him. Uh, They came to me saying they had a tremendous interest in me being a bipolar spokesman. They didn't say they wanted me to be their spokesperson for Abilify. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, I worked for the company. I, I started the medication. After four weeks, I knew there was no way I could tolerate the medication. I mean, what, what did you go through on Abilify? Uh, co- 
cognitive impairment where I couldn't even recognize people who I knew on a daily basis by, by face. Yeah. Uh, uh, akesthesia, which is kind of like a restless leg syndrome. It's a nice name for akesthesia. Uh, constipation, nausea. I mean, at, I mean, Bristol Myers Squibb is not happy about it, but when my non-disclosure was over, I spoke openly against Abilify. It is a drug that there are studies that show that it is no better um, for bipolar disorder than a placebo. Today, it's used for schizophrenia, bipolar, uh, an, ad, an adjunct treatment to depression, and now they're talking about using it for autism. It's crap. Yeah. Absolute crap. I mean, they're not happy that I've spoken to the media, not just about the side effects, but how they market the drug. In California, they're under indictment for allegedly bribing doctors to write prescriptions for the medication. Um, and if you if you go to www.abilify, A-B-I-L-I-F-Y, kills.com, you'll see my 60-second statement, which makes them shudder every day since half a million people <laughs> have watched it. Do you think it's ever going to be banned by the FDA? No, because the the FDA is in bed with the pharmaceutical industry, and Abilify makes billions of dollars for Bristol-Myers Squibb. And, you know, when a, when a company like Bristol-Myers Squibb puts profit before the health of their patients, we're really in trouble. But, you know, I mean, this is a country where we allow direct-to-consumer advertising. I mean, you can see you can see a commercial for a medication on TV with little butterflies flying around your head while you're laying on the <laughs> pillow. So, of course, you're going to go to your doctor and say, I want to have a sleep like that. Yeah. But and, and then doctors are just very quick to write prescriptions. They're quick to diagnose because it makes their lives easier. And they're quick to prescribe because it's lucrative to prescribe. What's the fix to this problem? The fix to this problem is to, I mean, we don't have ads for smoking on television anymore. No, we don't. But why do we have ads for pharmaceuticals? It's wrong, but the pharmaceutical industry has so much. They have more money than the, you know, I always say they have more money than the defense department. Yeah. They just have ridiculous amounts of money for marketing. Yeah. And advertising. Yeah. So the number one thing to do would be to stop this direct-to-consumer relationship and have pharmaceutical companies talk to doctors and for doctors, you know, to really be scrutinized, you know, for every prescription they write. Yeah. I mean, especially, I mean, California has been is an, an example where they've really gotten in trouble because doctors, you know, there's a doctor who sees no more than seven patients a day who in one day wrote 53, 53 prescriptions for Abilify. It's an impossibility. One of the things that I always get mad about in the doctor's office is, I don't know if you notice when you go in, but they always have a pen from some drug manufacturer or another. So I wonder what sales rep they saw that data take that pen from. Um, well, <laughs> psychiatrists in general will take anything from the pharmaceutical company. And trust me, they don't care about pens. Yeah. And, 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 and in 2012, they don't care about trips to Hawaii. Psychiatrists can afford trips to Hawaii. But psychiatrists cannot afford to turn down $50,000 checks. Um, they don't usually turn down tens of thousands of dollars worth of Laker tickets from pharmaceutical companies for um, doing what they're told to do, which is to write prescriptions. If you write a prescription for Abilify, you're adding basically $20,000 a year per patient to the, um, to the profits for the company. It's a lot of money, especially if you're at a hospital 
and you're just prescribing, you know, every patient you see on the ward with Abilify. And, and it is done really frequently. I mean, sometimes I ask people why they're on Abilify, and they say, well, for depression. It's not a drug for depression. It's not. Yeah, it's just kind of placebo, like you were saying. Uh, you know, I mean, there are a lot of people who've had success on Abilify. Oh, okay. Um, but then again, they're taking other medications, and they're on a tiny, tiny bit of it. It's probably... It's it's probably like eating a Smarties. Remember those candies when you were growing up? No, I don't. Those little sugar. It's like a it's like a it's like a Tic Tac. <laughs> oh, okay. Like, there's nothing in it. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing in it except it causes horrible side effects. I mean, including coma and death. And there are tons of reports of coma and death from Abilify. Yeah, just on a per- we'll just leave off more on a personal note. Um, now that you're off your medication and you're living in LA, what's your life like now? Well, I'm not off all of my medication. Oh, but- okay. Uh, I don't take as much medication as I took five years ago or 10 years ago. And, you know, I have two kids who are five and seven and I'm actively involved in, in their school and I'm actively involved in speaking about mental health awareness, stigma, suicide prevention, and, and the pharmaceutical industry. Um, at the same time, I'm working on a second book, waiting for Electro Boyd to go into production as a feature film. And um, that's my life. It's, uh, it's a lot different than it was. It's, Are you a script uh, consultant on this feature film? or Yes. Oh, cool. Yes. When's that going to be due to hit theaters? Well, no, don't, 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 don't think hit theaters. Think go into production. Oh, okay. Uh, September of 2013. Okay. All right. Yes. And when can we expect the sequel to Electro Boy? Uh, well, when I get off the phone, I, I've, got two, <laughs> I've, got two more, I've got two more months to... Uh, I've got two more months to finish the second book, which is really, you know, the next 10 years. Everyone always says, how come you've never written a book after Electro Boy? And I said, because nothing nearly as exciting has happened. And I really feel like this new book is so much more exciting than the first book. Oh, wow. Um, and, I mean, I, you know, I always, people always say to me, I feel like Electro Boy is a combination of Catch Me If You Can and A Beautiful Mind. I'm like, okay, if that's how you feel, great. Uh, but, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a fun read, but I have to say, it's, uh, it's a book that, really turned into it was it was really one of the early 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 um mental health memoirs i mean it, it was you know there were not that many books in that genre then today it's flooded but you know if you go to amazon today you can still buy electro boy for a penny cuz there's <laughs> hundreds of thousands of copies out there yeah uh, so that's my that's my pitch. Buy Electro Boy for a penny on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Well, my guest has been uh, Andy Berman. He's the author of Electro Boy, a memoir of mania. And um, thank you for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you. And if anybody has any questions, they can just go to the website at electroboy.com, like Heather said, and there's a place to contact me if you have questions about any kind of question you have relating to mental illness, depression, bipolar disorder, medication, doctors, strategies, I'm here. Cool. All right. This is the Heather McCoy Show.